analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Lovely looking day shaping up here in Kamloops. Uh, pretty good show in front of you. We'll dive back into the legislature spending scandal, the Canadian Taxpayer Federation's Chris Sims in a little bit. We'll also hear about a cool project with the goal of saving First Nations languages and get our weekly snapshot of the latest in the Trump-Russia probe with TRU's Jeffrey Myers. But first up, education issues with Kamloops Thompson School District Board Chair Kathleen Karpuk in studio. How are you? I'm great. Um, thanks for coming in and bearing the smell, by the way, because... <laughs> I coated my, for those who weren't listening to Howie and I earlier, I did a big snowshoe and my legs are rather uh, sore. <laughs> so I coated them with, I coated them with A535 this morning and I seem to have hotboxed the newsroom and pretty much anybody within a 40 foot radius. So uh, <laughs> you're talking to me through a hazy fog of A535 right now. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, uh, okay, board meeting last night, a uh, couple of big issues on the agenda. First off, um, one of two decisions made, uh, Westwold, you guys tackled last night. What was the end result in that decision? So um, having heard from the community and hearing that there are younger kids uh, coming up through the system, we've decided to keep Westwold open uh, at least until we know that we're going to have kids in September so the decision is basically as long as we have a minimum of six children registered and physically in the school by September 30th the school will stay open if we don't see those six kids the school will close six sounds like a pretty low minimum sort of number six is not a lot of kids six is not a lot of kids and there are some disadvantages to that in terms of social development in that those kids don't get to um, have a lot of friends to play with while they're at school yeah. um, in terms of a learning environment it can be challenging because we're going to a k-7 to which means that um, that that'll be a challenge in trying to deliver curriculum across that many grades what we're hoping is that that we'll see the school grow and that's now up to the community they really need to be able to support their school and enroll the kids so that the school stays open what was the i guess the feedback was by and large like please don't close our school and hence the decision that's that's basically the decision yeah. we're not in any uh financial straits in terms of having to close the school because of financial reasons it really comes down to education and academic reasons for either keeping it open or closing it. Okay, so that brings us to uh, Westwold's out of the way. Uh, the next one, uh, the decision is West Side, uh, and I believe you're going to hear from people this week. So we are headed out. Um, we're having a meeting on Wednesday, tomorrow night, at 7 o'clock at David Thompson Elementary, and that's where we will hear about uh, what the issues are around David Thompson, why we're looking at uh, opening West Side and some of the financial picture behind that, portables and uh, catchment areas. Do you, what do you sort of anticipate as far as a crowd reaction? I mean, um, you and I talked about this not that long ago. Obviously, there might be some people upset, increased traffic, but do you think that by and large people will be like, yeah, let's relieve some pressure. I want some space around my child or no? 
I think that um, not having portables is always better than having portables. <laughs> we talk about uh, overcrowded schools. There's pressure on washrooms. There's pressure on gyms. There's pressure on hallways. Um, it's just harder to manage a school when you've got a bunch of the kids outside the school building in portables. So moving to having two schools where we've got a little bit more management, we've got more space for those, you know, PE, using the gym, better washroom space, that type of thing is an advantage. Okay. Uh, so once you gather the feedback, whatever it may be, uh, tomorrow night, uh, then what happens? Uh, then we will also have uh, feedback uh, ability for people. They can email us. There will be an email link on our homepage that people can submit comments to. And I believe at this moment we are looking at making a decision at our March board meeting. Okay. Any inkling of what that decision might be here? Or is it I'm wide not, open? I'm not even going to speculate. <laughs> All right. Uh, the other one, too, and it's drawing some attention is, is of course, this, this we've, we've covered the capital need and we understand, you know, the pressures out there. So, uh, first up, Valley View Secondary, be it an expansion or a total replacement, a decision's going to come or not at all, I guess. So, there's three options the province can do, but hopefully they'll do something rather than nothing. Uh, so, we ho we're hopeful of a decision soon on that. Um, I'm going to read uh, sort of what uh, what Calvin Stretch wrote, which sort of is causing a bit of reaction in his uh, in his directive that went to board last night. Uh, further to Director McDonald's work, I continue to work with the Ministry of Finance staff to determine how much our district is able to contribute to the capital cost of the project when project approval is announced. Is that slightly optimistic language, or do you guys know something you're not telling us? Uh, it's slightly optimistic, but I think he's basing it on the hints that the minister has dropped that there will be announcement this spring. Yeah. So we've been in very close contact with the ministry. They've been very supportive in helping us with our project um, report. Um, we're talking to them on a constant basis, so we're very, very hopeful that we're going to have good news and keeping our fingers crossed. Now, there's two choices if they go. They can either do a significant expansion or they can replace. What's more ideal from your perspective? We're going to be happy with either. <laughs> <laughs> Beggars can't be choosers. All right. Uh, construction costs are up, though. That has to be a concern. Construction costs are up, so um, the cost of the project that we currently have has gone from $26 million to $34 million. Wow. So the price of construction is rapidly increasing. So. Wow. So if you're going to do a replace, then I imagine that would really boost it up to sort of the 70, 100 million area somewhere? I think that's probably where we would be looking at if it was a replacement, yeah. Okay. Um, budget is, of course, coming next month, and that's going to be the tell-all if this line item is somewhere in the budget with Valley View. Uh, beyond Valley View, is there hope that the government will move on some of the other stuff? I mean, Valley View, whatever they do there, obviously great. Welcome. Let's do it. But that that doesn't in and of itself solve all the challenges that you guys are dealing with. Are you hopeful that there's going to be a second or a third capital project announced here sometime? We're really hopeful. The ministry's been really listening to us. I think they really do understand that we have population pressures in other areas of the city that are not just Valley View. I mean, we look at all of the development that's been happening up in Pine View Valley. We're long overdue for getting a school up there. You look at the population pressures that have been happening out uh, at Westmount, Bachelor Hills area of town. Uh, Reopening West Side will certainly alleviate some of the pressures out there, 
but some of the information that we got last night was showing that David Thompson was forecast to hit 155% in the next few years for capacity. So reopening Westside Elementary really only relieves the pressure in that particular end of Westside. It doesn't deal with the population pressure around Bachelor Heights. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Okay, uh, before we let you go, uh, last topic, video surveillance was dealt with last night. Why do we need it and what did the board decide to do there? So that's generally for information for the board. Uh, we have video that we put in in areas that are susceptible to vandalism. And so it's a bit of a preventative measure. And uh, if we have somebody that's uh, breaking equipment or breaking windows and it's repetitive and ongoing, we'll put in video cameras. How often does that happen? I mean, often enough that you're talking about it at a board meeting, I assume. Mm -hmm. It... It's nuisance stuff that happens on a, a regular basis in some places, which is why we put in the cameras and yeah. we move them around as we need to. And it was just about dealing with privacy issues and that kind of thing, I suppose? It's basically a, to let people know that we do have video surveillance in some of, at some of our schools on the outside, yep. Would it go into school buses? All of our school buses have videos. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, always, always a pleasure, and thanks for enduring the very sharp smell of A535. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be able to get smell something else later in the day, and those those eyes will start oh, stop watering. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Thankfully, all the rest of my guests are on the phone. <laughs> That's Kathleen Carpuck, the board chair of the Candles Thompson School District. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on the other side. We'll dive back into that legislature spending scandal with the Canadian tax. Bears Federation. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's BC Director, Chris Sims, as we dive back into the legislature's spending scandal. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I no, appreciate you coming on. Okay, so uh, last time we chatted, you took some time and sat down and waded through an absolute pool of receipts, uh, listing a whole tawdry uh, list of expenditures uh, as far as Craig James and Gary Lenz are concerned. All this contained, of course, in that uh, shocking speech. Speaker's report. So uh, obviously a wealth of stuff to get really upset about, but uh, what did you find as you kind of started to analyze all these receipts and stuff? I encourage anybody who has the time and the stomach for it to actually go to the legislature website and wade through this if they can. And I'll be honest, um, when the speaker said if taxpayers don't want to throw up by the time they're finished reading this story that uh, he'd resign, I think his job's pretty secure. It um, was really bad. Uh, there were around 600 or so receipts, I think, that I looked at. And it ranges from everything that we've heard a little bit about already, like going to these boutique gift shops uh, at Westminster repeatedly during their repeated trips to London, England, and picking up everything you can imagine. I mean, $30 pens, uh, whiskey cakes, um, books that are specializations on how to insult people. It's called scorn. So apparently if you want to insult somebody, head over to London and buy this paperback. And then, of course, the gunpowder mustard. And there's the big stuff, like the wood splitter. But there were also big ticket items like a Sony camcorder for $2,500. Why? Why are these people buying this stuff? A tripod for $800. Again, why? The Bose noise-canceling headphones for 500 bucks, 
And what's really interesting or ironic is right on the expense claim, it's written there in ballpoint pen, noise-canceling headphones for air travel. Well, I guess if you're booking so many trips, you want to ride in comfort. But what really jumped out to me was I was looking very carefully at some of the receipts for luggage. And you can see that luggage was purchased at Heathrow Airport and at a fancy place called the House of Fraser in London. And then there's one for the Hong Kong Airport. And I think the total of the receipt was something like $1,200. But I looked at it, and one of the items is called uh, Large, I can actually read it to you, Maverick Large black edition and it was about eight hundred dollars or so and somebody has actually circled the amount on the receipt and written in pen luggage and there's a check mark next to it so i wanted to know what an eight hundred dollar suitcase actually looks like and anything with the word maverick in it i just want to see what it looks like anyway so (laughs) the website right i'm a child of the 80s i want to know does this thing have top gun wings on it so i went and looked maverick large black edition is a watch it's a man's watch. It's not luggage at all. And so I cross-referenced it, too, with the item number. It's a watch. And so I actually have a friend, believe it or not, who specializes in fancy watches. And I sent the receipt to them and the image connected to it on the website to them and said, can you see this in any of the connected images? And apparently it looks very similar, not saying it is, but it looks really similar to a watch that was being worn at the press conference where wrongdoing was being denied. Yeah, on the wrist of Craig James, by the way. Yeah, I encourage anybody to go take a look at the pictures, and there's a cross-reference, and you can look it up if you want to yourself. It is called a Maverick Large Black Edition, and it is from um, the Victoronics um, Boutique. Yeah. Um, as I look through some of the expenses, I mean, I had the same questions as you, is why are we paying? And I note that Andrew Weaver, uh, if you go over to his Twitter timeline, went on a mission to try and find uh, luggage uh, and, and struggled to find something in the 1000 to $2,000 range. Uh, I mean, why are we paying uh, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for a piece of luggage that you could get for, uh, you know, 100 bucks at the local bay or whatever? Like, it just seems that there's an excess here. And, it's not, and in some cases, Cases it's the item itself. In some cases, it's it's plain Jane sort of needs that are that are taken to this massive excess. Yes, exactly. And further to this, and this is one of the things you start really shaking your head further and further. People can say, "Oh well, you know, if you're going on a trip, you need a camera, <laughs> like an Olympus camera with a matching red Olympus camera case. Um, buy it yourself." Like this idea that somehow every single thing, including like more than a dozen magazine subscriptions, should be paid for by the taxpayer is outrageous. And again, the position of clerk at the B.C. legislature is paid $347,000 per year. If one wants to travel to London, one could do that his or herself. If one wants to buy gunpowder mustard or ginger-infused milk chocolate from the House of Lords, you can do that yourself. And so I think that's what's really bothering a lot of people. And I try to explain expensing things in this way. So it can be big things or little things. But imagine you're at the gas station and you're going to buy a pack of gum. Would you turn around to the person behind you and say, hey, buy this for me? No. Well, then don't expense it, because that's exactly what you're doing when you are expensing something to the taxpayer. You are turning to the person behind you and saying, buy this for me. 
Well, that brings up a question. I mean, government people do travel. They do incur expenses. Uh, expense, uh, expenses as a whole isn't an uncommon practice out in the business world. Uh, but if you're working for, you know, company X, there is a responsibility that if you go out that you expense things with some sense of rationale, that, it, that you have to justify it. So uh, to what extent do we, A, need to have a system that, that really looks at the stuff and says, well, no, that's, why, why did you expense this? We need this money back because this doesn't make any sense. And and conversely, on the people going out that's filing the expense forms, if you're a government staffer, I mean, where's the sense of responsibility in, you know, staying at the best hotel versus something that makes sense for taxpayers? Or by taking a galaxy travel chauffeured trip around, you know, the lake country of England. You know, really? Like, when does that start ringing an alarm bell for you? Um, there's many levels to this. Number one. Why is an officer of a legislature, I don't care which legislature, traveling around the world? They're not the Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada. They're not even the Tourism Minister of a province. Why is that person traveling around the world? Two, why do they not need to post their expenses the same way that an MLA does? So an MLA, if you've got an MLA there in Kamloops or if we have an MLA down here in the Fraser Valley, they need to post everything they expense on the Internet so we can go look for it. That's part of transparency and accountability. So they don't need to do that. They're not subject to it whatsoever. The only reason we have these receipts is because of the speaker report. Third, even if we wanted to find out, you as a reporter or me as a CTF, if we wanted to find out what they're expensing, we couldn't. Because officers of the legislature are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, the FOI. So that's a problem because every nickel that they take in in salary and that they spend comes from us. It comes from taxpayers. So the idea that they're not subject to freedom of information is wrong. And fourthly, we need a permanent watchdog. We need somebody sitting there minding the bank and finding out what's this for. You need to justify it and know we are not giving you money back for headphones or luggage or more than a dozen magazine subscriptions or a new camera. There's also stuff like when, he, when, when this new, and again, we need to know, was any of this paid back? I want to know. Maybe they just expensed it on their cards to get points and then paid it back. We don't know. That is why we need to hear from the people involved. But when that new Olympus camera was purchased with a matching camera case and then expensed from Carisdale cameras, I checked the dates on the receipts, which looked like they were submitted together. They're a year apart. There's one receipt for a brand new blue camera case. A year later on the same date is when the red camera and case was purchased. Why did that happen? Hmm. Unbelievable. Uh, we're flat out of time, but really quickly, just a last question to you on this watchdog thing. Would that be as simple as adjusting um, the depth and the scope of how the Auditor General reviews the legislature's books. She does every year, uh, but she obviously had sort of a 4,000-foot view, didn't really go into depth on expenses. Should there be another layer of scrutiny in the Auditor General's annual look? Yes, it needs to be granular. And as of right now, based on this scandal, we need outside oversight. We need somebody to come in, somebody like Sheila Frazier, who's never darkened the door of the legislature, to look at all of this. Because right now, I think trust has been eroded in British Columbia. Yeah, fair to say. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We'll take a quick break here on The Woodford Show on Radio NL. On the other side, uh, we'll hear about a cool project looking to preserve and restore First Nations languages. 
News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to be joined by the Volunteer Chief Executive Officer of First Nations Education Foundation, also the elected president of Euclid First Nation, Les Dorian. Les, how are you? I'm great. Colossal. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for coming on. Hey, before we talk about this really cool project, it looks to sort of uh, preserve and revitalize First Nation languages. Give me some kind of contextual uh, background. Um, what What's the concern out there as far as uh, various First Nations languages across the province um, either having sort of faded away or being on the edge of, of fading away and, and the need to kind of revitalize them? What, what's going on out there? Well, what's happening, and it's, it's not just out here, um, it's, it's across you know, the whole the entire um, country of Canada, um, is that the, the languages are, and not in every community, but in a lot of communities, are suffering where the, the uh, fluent speakers um, are, are you know, passing on and, um, and uh, the, the programs and the, the funding that has, has been in place over the, over the, you know, the, in the past has all, for the most part, been grants and such. And it's, uh, and, you know, so you're trying to piece something together that, that you know, that's a, that's a monster, and you're trying to do it with, with uh, minimal funding. And um, and in the meantime, that you're facing your elders um, passing away or your fluent speakers, and you're losing that that, that history. And um, so, and what happened is that you know, with with colonization and residential schools and stuff, in the past, what's happened is that you know, the language and culture and heritage was basically um, taken away from the indigenous people, and so you weren't allowed to practice your 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 culture. Period. Right? Singing, dancing, speaking yeah. to each other, anything. So. Um, um, and it, you know that that whole system, um, you know, t- took away from from the language, and and uh, so you you had nobody speaking it. Still to this day, the challenges are is that a lot of people are are, are intimidated and afraid to speak their language because of that that hangover from from the past. So with that, you know, when when I when I um, came we started working for my tribe back in 2015 i think we had around 15 fluent speakers now we're down to nine ouch yeah so and and that hurts right so Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is that we're trying to uh, create and develop technology and apps and awareness to 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 you know not just canada but the entire world about you know what the importance of this is to the indigenous peoples and this is indigenous people around the world my focus and our focus is, is on the Chanoff language and, and indigenous languages across this country, uh, provincial, you know, right, right from coast to coast to coast. And I go on. That, that's what we need to do is that we need to create that awareness. So that's what that's what we're doing. And, and uh, we've created an app. We've, we've recorded and um, we've been working you know, diligently on, on, on working with our elders and getting some of our youth um, up to speed. And we have uh, two young women that are amazing. I mean, too and you know that that it might not sound like much but that's all that's huge in the, in in our numbers um to to try and help save our language so um it's it's been a challenge and they go and so that's what we're trying to do is that you know this whole thing is to, to create the awareness uh, from everybody um to come and look and see and hear about what we're doing to try and save our language because our language is our culture right 
No, absolutely. Um, and, and that's a horrific situation to be in, quite frankly, because uh, to hear that you only have nine language speakers, I mean, that's really shocking. And I imagine there, I'm, I assume, are there languages out there from some from some bands or some tribes that, that have just gone away at all, or, or, or is, there, is there just a danger of that? No, there is. There is that. I mean, we, we Toquat Nation is is our sister nation, which is only a few kilometers away from us, and and uh, they don't. I don't think that they have any fluent speakers that that are left. So they're working. I know Chief Ann Mack is working diligently um, on on her language and the program, and and she misses a lot of stuff that we do. And you know, when we're lobbying and, and meeting with the prime ministers and and such, or prime minister and such in Ottawa, is that a lot of times she doesn't come because she's been working and she'll say she'll send somebody because she's working on her language and, and the, the, the continuity to that program, you, you need to have it. And it's something that you need to, it's like a use it or lose it, right? If you don't keep speaking it, then, then uh, um, it's going it's to fade away. So, um, and that's, you know, the Toquat Nation, which is right beside us. They speak the same dialect as what we do. So, so they're, you know, we, we can help each other, but those are the challenges. And then there's other tribes right across the country as well that, that don't have any fluent speakers, right? They don't have anything. So what you need to do is, like, for us, is that document, 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 video, you know, and do audios and, and uh, you know, do everything you can, write it down. And, and one of the things is that our Indigenous people, we were not really a, uh, we're more of a oral um, a group of people rather than, than somebody that's documenting and writing stuff down. Right. And, and uh, so, you know, it's really important that we get those stories and, and all of the cultural components recorded so that, that you know, if and you know, horribly one day that there are no elders that speak it, then, then we do have something documented and, and recorded so um, we can show the, you know, the grandchildren down the road. So to that end, we have this uh, 800-year-old tree that has fallen near Bamfield. Uh, it's 40,000 pounds, some 75 feet long. Uh, and that tree is going to play a little bit of a role here in revitalizing First Nation languages. How? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very optimistic and excited about the whole project. It'll be carved here in Port Alberni, um, out at, uh, uh, by the Sashat Market on the Sashat Territory with Master Carver um, Tim Paul from Heshquit and George Nookmas, who's a Master Carver from Huea, uh from the Banfield area. And uh, it'll be carved here. It'll be done uh, by next fall. And uh, so that's really exciting and erected at the University of Victoria. Um, the biggest thing is that it'll it'll create aware- awareness um, around the world, and, and not only the totem pole will raise awareness of the threats um, facing the indigenous languages in Canada, but also all around the world. Um, that's what our hope is, and that it will also draw <coughs> excuse me draw attention to the urgent need to advance reconciliation and healing by supporting indigenous peoples and communities, and in their efforts to preserve and promote. Um, their language and cultures through innovative solutions and uh, you know such as apps and Skype and recordings and videos and you know the technology today is so advanced it's 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 amazing um, you know we we need to use that in order to be able to capture um, you know any any speakers and languages that we have to document everything to uh, to try and help save it
Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, uh, this sounds like an amazing project and, and definitely uh, a vital cause uh, as far as helping to revitalize First Nations languages. And, and I hope that uh, we can have you back on at some point in the future. And the next time we talk, that there's some serious momentum in that front. Because, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not in, in the shoes of, of, of yourself or any other First Nations person, but I can only imagine the, the incredible cost of uh, losing your language, which is at the core of who you are in a, in a very real way. Yeah, it's it, you know the, the the real the real exciting thing is that we have a we have a you know a, a chance um, to save it. That that that's really exciting about it. Um, the other side of that is that knowing that you know our ancestors that that uh, that paved the way for us to be here today, that they would be uh, really excited about it as well. You know, because you're going they they were the ones that were stripped of the opportunity to even practice it. So um, we're blessed to be able to have that opportunity. Um, I would love to have you out here, and I can keep you updated on anything if you uh, you want to stay in touch with me i'll gladly give you updates and uh you know we're, we're going to be filming and videoing and recording everything that we do um through throughout the entire project but um to come out here to the to vancouver island and see the new channel people and and meet the uh, the master carvers and the, and the process and come and see it um love to have you out here that'd be fantastic i'll take you up on the invitation les thank you so much for taking the time and look forward to touching base in the future all right. Well, in our in our language, they, uh, there's a saying, and it's "uath huquets," and that means take care of yourself. Thank you. You honor me for 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 that little piece of your language, and I thank you for it. Okay. Les, thanks so much. Appreciate that. That's the Volunteer Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Education Foundation, also the elected president of Euclid First Nation, Les Dorian, and a very worthy cause of trying to restore and revitalize First Nations languages that, as you heard there, are on the cusp of, of going away, and we do not want that to happen. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll get our weekly touch, uh, touch base on the Russia-Trump probe with Jeffrey Myers. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Always a pleasure to catch up with uh, Jeffrey Myers, a lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University, and God only knows we've got a lot to talk about. How are you, Jeff? I'm good. How are you doing, Shane? Yeah, I'm well. Uh, listen, why don't, we, uh, why don't we work our way backwards uh, and, and we'll get all these uh, subjects covered because there is quite a lot of uh, dynamite since last we talked. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Mr. Whitaker, uh, the acting attorney general, uh, said today that the Mueller probe is near complete. He has reviewed it and it's in its final stages. Your reaction to that? Well, I mean, that's quite a statement. Um, certainly there's other evidence to suggest uh, that that's likely the case. Uh, and we can talk about that around the sort of the high drama surrounding the stone um, arrest, but also, I mean, if you remember a few weeks ago, um, legendary uh, Watergate, um, le- legendary Watergate reporter Carl Bernstein had said that he had sources which were telling him the same thing. Effectively, he said that, um, in fact, he was saying there was already a draft Mueller report. He, you know, he didn't say he saw it himself, but he said he had what he described as reliable source. And again, if you're going to trust any journalist, why not make it Carl Bernstein? And he said that one of the, the most explosive conclusion that he had extracted and sort of shared uh, on, oh, I think it was on CNN's Reliable Sources, is he said that, that the Mueller uh, report would, would conclude that uh, Mr. Mr. Trump helped Putin destabilize the U.S. in the context of the 2016 election meddling. 
Yeah. So um, uh, I guess the other thing with the whatever Mr. Mueller puts out there, I guess there's always the question of, I mean, once he's done, Jeff, uh, the other question then is, you know, what what will be made available to public consumption and, and what will be kept under wraps? And that's that's a question that will only be answered when it actually happens, I suppose. Well, I mean, it, it truly, I mean, the, the thing is that this report, it, there's going, it's not going to come necessarily fully uh, unredacted and publicly available immediately. The report is going to go from Mr. Mueller to the Attorney General, which presumably by then will be uh, Mr. Barr rather than Mr. Whitaker. Hence the questioning in terms of his confirmation on you know what he intends to. There's worry that he's going to. There's of course the preliminary worry that he would shut down uh, Mr. Mueller's investigation. He expressed some skepticism towards it as a private citizen. But then there's this question of what will he if he doesn't presumably and he's given assurances he won't. What will he do with the report? Uh, once it's on his desk. Um, and I think certainly there's going to be a number of oversight committees in Congress that uh, expect to and want to see it. Uh, I think the American public is going to want to see it, and there's going to be significant um, oversight powers, again, especially since Congress has switched hands to subpoena any portions of it that aren't immediately released. Um, but it might not be you know, immediate that the whole um, report is released. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out again. There's no real precedent for this. Yeah, no, no kidding. Um, listen, moving on to one of the other things that kind of tweaked my interest uh, ahead of our chat. Uh, William Barr, who's, of course, uh, Donald Trump's nominee for attorney general, he told uh, uh, the Senate today that he would rather resign than fire special counsel Mueller without, yeah. good, ca- without good cause. And that's a direct quote. Uh, your take on that? Well, I mean, we'll all know that Mr. Mr. I mean, the senators have been sort of, you know, um, uh, relatively behind Mr. Barr insofar as he's kind of an establishment figure, right? Because he was the attorney general for George H.W. Bush. In fact, I think I mentioned on one of your earlier shows, he's probably the youngest AG then and now he'll be one of the older ones. So he was seen as a conservative but steady hand at the tiller. But there had been some alarm around, including by moderate Republican senators and certainly among Democratic senators, um, around comments around that he wrote written a letter to the Mueller investigation and made comments, had written a memo, sorry, a legal memorandum, suggesting that there was no basis for the Mueller investigation to go forward and had made similar, written similar op-eds. And so it was widely seen to be kind of auditioning for the role because it's known that, of course, Mr. Trump likes to watch what happens in the media and that Whitaker, by the way, had done similar things, which is, is quite unseemly, but uh, I guess a story for another day. But so they now, so that's his liability right now in terms of his ability, the one thing sort of standing between him and a smooth sailing nomination uh, is if he can assure everybody that, you know, he's not going to go in there and dismantle the Mueller investigation. But, you know, if the Demo- if the majority in the Senate, for example, was serious about this, um, and I'm talking now about the Republicans particularly, you know, they would agree with the Democrats who want to move forward some um, legislation have wanted for some time. It's been on the on the um, on the table to um, to have Mr. Mueller's position and status protected uh, from firing without cause, um, and that's not been something that the legislatures have been willing to sort of put the rubber to the road on. Um, but you know, when it comes to the confirmation of um, of the new attorney general, of course, this is the key kind of issue. All right, let's get to the the juicy bit now. I know that you mentioned this uh, to yeah. me, um, you know, probably a few shows back now. But uh-huh. uh, as Mr. Mueller unveils his his charges and his indictments, uh, you said that uh, I believe that uh, topping your list of one of the ones to possibly drop was Roger Stone. And sure enough, uh, last week, uh, pretty shortly after we had our last conversation, uh, made a lot of headlines that he in fact was indicted and charged uh, and then released pending some court appearances. So, um, your take on that? 
Well, I mean, you know, there's a, there's so much to to think about and unpack there. I mean, I suppose that we can, you know, one possible, you know, um, response is, is is if this really is the last indictment, and I don't think it's just we, you know, despite the speculation about the report being almost done, you know, the 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 Trump administration and its allies have been saying the report's almost done for some time. So I think there's reason to believe it may well be, but I don't think we're necessarily done with the indictments. You know, but if we don't see in the next little while an indictment of um, either some of the other people that were in that famous June 16th Trump Tower meeting where supposedly there was be, um, dirt being on Hillary Clinton was being sought, um, you can see, well, you know where Manafort is. He's in jail, right? Um, and um, but we and we, we now see Roger Stone as one of the kind of key conduits in this whole um, question. But we don't see either of Mr. Trump's son-in-law or his son, so that was something that you know I think might be significant in sort of moving the dial a bit. But nevertheless, what we have is we have Roger Stone, who's been indicted with seven counts of obstruction of justice, lying to Congress, and witness tampering, right? And specifically uh, that he was not forthcoming. This is what the allegation, uh, what the indictment uh, alleges about the extent of his contacts with WikiLeaks during the 2016 campaign, where he was both a formal at times and other times informal advisor and by all accounts close confidant of the president. Um, and remember that during, of course, your listeners will remember that during the campaign, the WikiLeaks was publishing stolen emails from the Democratic National Committee and and, uh, and from Hillary Clinton, which, um, frankly, along with Mr. Comey's sort of late date intervention in the in the public, sort of hurt the Clinton campaign, you know, um, in an obvious way. And the indictment, though, alleges that contrary to Mr. Stone's previous contention, that he wasn't closely connected to WikiLeaks at all. Uh, that in fact he was seeking to get as much information as possible from WikiLeaks regarding what was coming down the pikes, I guess, to uh, determine what dirt was coming out of Hillary Clinton next to position the campaign uh, to benefit from it. Uh, and the indictment alleges that in sort of carrying out the various um, criminal offenses that it alleges, namely ones about covering up his activities rather than the substantive activities himself, that Mr. Stone wasn't working alone, but that he was working at the behest of and at the direction of the Trump campaign, right? Um, and so, so the, so this is, and that what I'm going to tell you now, I think is the, is the nub of it. The, the Washington uh, Post reported said before the indictment, this is one of the, the, one of the things that was in the Washington Post editorial page, which I think is, is a good point. It said, look, before this indictment, it was at least possible for the president's campaign to complain that, to claim that it was merely an unwitting beneficiary of the, do, of the WikiLeaks document dumps, but not, um, but now that Mueller has alleged multiple individuals were involved in the Trump campaign uh, and were in contact with Stone, uh, that is a whole other story, right? And so if you and if you remember, again, just going back to thirty thousand feet and putting the pieces together beyond the indictment, this most recent indictment, but just the facts we already know. And as I've emphasized to you before, I think it's important that people who are following this don't um, you know, put aside or think unimportant things that were done before their eyes, right? Remember on July 27th, 2016, in one of the debates with Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump exclaimed for the whole world, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you'll be able to find the, the 30,000 emails that are missing, right? Uh, and, and so I think insofar as collusion then is a kind of moral and political crime rather than specifically a formal legal one, which it's not, it's more a body of crimes, this is perhaps partially or completely 
um, you know, the, a window into everything. Uh, and then when you look at the timing around um, what's alleged in the indictment of Mr. Stone, you can see all of the uh, surrounding events, and you can see more specifically um, yet another two incidents in which Mr. Trump personally obstructed justice in the sort of almost plain view of the world. For the first time, as I've told your listeners in the past, was when he said to Lester, Lester Holt uh, on NBC News, after the firing of Mr. Comey, quote, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost the election. They should have won, which contradicted the White House's line that Comey was fired on the recommendation of Gen uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. And then on May 10th, when there was this meeting between Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyov and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov at the Oval Office with no um, U.S. media in the room, but Russia media in the room. It was then reported by the New York Times. And again, you do have to rely to some extent here on the reporting because it wasn't directly broadcast you know, to the public, but that he had said in this meeting that great pressure, quote unquote, had been relieved by the firing of Mr. Comey. And he said that he was crazy. He was a real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia, quote, that's taken off. Uh, and then again, you link that back in with the Trump Tower meeting with Natalia Vazelnitskaya, who, of course, has herself been indicted on, on adjacent charges of money laundering and admitted that she works for the um, Russian government and the Crown Prosecutor, which is linked uh, closely to the Kremlin in Russia. And then, of course, the cooperation of and the guilty pleas of Paul Manafort as well. Um, so it just comes down now, really, and this is what the Mueller report is going to hinge on, is painting this picture of collusion, which, again, isn't necessarily, strictly speaking, a, uh, a legal uh, crime in the legal sense, although it is a political and moral and, I think, impeachable one. But the criminal kind of um, high crimes and misdemeanors typically that presidents are impeached for is obstruction of justice, which is very specifically to influence, obstruct, or impede. I'm quoting from the statute here, including corruptly the prop, quote-unquote, proper administration of law in a pending proceeding, including by Congress, okay? And so that's what we're talking about here. So the noose is tightening in that very kind of specific way. A um, couple questions here. Number one, uh, seven charges against Mr. Stone. As you look at those charges, is there, um, I don't know how to phrase this, is, is there one that's more serious? Is, is you look at the, Do they tell you anything? What do you read out of the specific charges themselves? Well, the thing is the, the, the um, indictment's replete with detail. I mean, again, as I say, there are seven counts of different places or moments in time where, there's obstruct, where Mr. Stone is alleged to have dressed, uh, obstructed justice lie to Congress and even in, including also witness tampering, which is very serious. All of those offenses are very serious and can net very real jail time. Um, but I mean, I think what's ultimately happening here is obvious is that, and this is the way in which um, prosecutors work when they're trying to get at the central figure in a kind, of a kind of criminal enterprise, again, whether it's a mob family or in this case, a corrupt president, is you're putting the squeeze to people closer and closer and closer and around um, uh, around the president in the hopes that those people will cooperate in order to get a lesser sentence and provide you with information about the president's involvement in potential uh, crimes or even just further evidence of obstruction of justice. 
And then, uh, you know, uh, when we look at indictments, uh, one of the things that, that I think you mentioned in the past, you'd be keeping an eye on sort of Donald Trump Jr. Now that we have Roger Stone indicted, uh, does this, in your mind, sort of increase the chances we might see one land within the Trump family, or is that out of the radar at this point? No, I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure that it is a sign of that. I think, you know, I think we should be expecting that to happen imminently if it's going to happen. And, I mean, we kind of know most of the evidence from what's out there. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but I, I don't think we should hold out hope. But I, I certainly don't think it's necessary to make a case for uh, impeachment or to have a compelling report that those indictments are also come out. But I would think if they were going to be made, they would be imminent or they would have already been um, been made. And I guess my last question, Jeff, is uh, Mr. Mueller's obviously either closing or closed the loops or linking the Russian government, WikiLeaks, and the Trump campaign. Uh, but so far, he's yet to—he's not yet charged anyone with sort of a grand conspiracy or any kind of direct charge linked to Russia. And I've seen this line from Mr. Trump's supporters in the White House saying, hey, listen, these are all charges specific to people. There's no ties here between the campaign or Mr. Trump and Russia. That could try to distance themselves from that. Is that something to come or, or possibly or how do you see that sort of fitting into this grand mesh let me just respond to that by saying this okay let's remember who the Mueller investigation has indicted right it's inde- indicted a guy named uh constantine kalimnik okay who was a manafort aide and in, in, in a ukraine political operative with ties to russian intelligence okay he was charged <laughs> with witness tampering uh, in connection with his work as a lobbyist, right, for the Ukraine's pro-Russian government. Uh, we've got Samuel Patton, who's a U.S. citizen, who is a partner of uh, a Russian national accused by Mueller's office of ties to Russian intelligence, and who had already who pled guilty this summer to unregistered lobbying for a, a yet another pro-Kremlin political party in the Ukraine. We've got Richard Panetto, who play, pled guilty in February to identity fraud for assisting Russian conspirators to laun, launder money and purchase Facebook ads, which were very influential in the election. We then have 12 Russian intelligence officers who we've joked about, you know, they're not likely to be taking their vacation uh, in the United States anytime soon, so they won't likely get arrested, but they've been indicted uh, by a federal grand jury this summer, right? And they were charged specifically with hacking the DNC network, which backs up and is based on the evidence and the assessment of U.S. intelligence agencies which have concluded with a high degree of certainty that this is indeed what happened. Then we have 13 Russians and three Russian entities that have been indicted by uh, by uh, Mr. Mueller's um, investigation all the way back in February of last year and accused of tampering in the election. Again, they're never going to show up and be arrested, but that's the picture of the case you have. Uh, and the list, um, you have Maria Butina, right? You remember she was charged with illegally acting as a, uh, she was an Amer- a Russian-American graduate student who was charged with illegally acting as a Russian agent in the U.S. by the Department of Justi- Justice and since pled guilty to working with a senior Russian official to infiltrate influential groups in the U.S. like the NRA in the run-up to the 2016 election. Now, she's not a part of the Mueller investigation. She's being handled separately by the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. So the Roger Stone indictment is just the next step in all of this. And I think that, that as usual, the Trump's administration's claim that, you know, there's no connection, there's no connection to him. It's, it's becoming, you know, um, it's, it's beginning to, to beggar belief. And certainly, um, you know, we don't know specifically and can't know yet um, what Mr. Trump really did or didn't know, or whether he just buried his head in the sands or was, was just sort of completely ignorant. We, we can't necessarily know that, but we, what we do know is that there have been sufficient, never mind indictments or charges filed, but actual guilty pleas 
to suggest that, um, you know, that there were very serious and multiple and overlapping and complex links between uh, Russia, Russia and the Russian government and Russian agents and the Trump campaign. All right. Uh, changing channels just a bit here to end off our chat this week. But um, the, this Huawei case, uh, the Chinese telecom company, yeah. uh, which has been sort of grabbing yeah. some yeah. some headlines, uh, claimed uh, Mr. John McCallum, of course, who was our ambassador to China. Uh, he had to resign after uh, well, he kind of apologized for some comments on the Huawei file. And then mm. uh, after his apology got caught on tape saying it would be good for Canada if the United States would stand down on the extradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was it. He was given the boot. Uh, what's your read of this situation? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've taught public law before. And, you know, one of the things I, I explain to my students is, is that, you know, um, civil servants, okay, are not are uh, as part of the kind of way our legal system operates is that civil servants are tasked with carrying out the orders effectively of their political masters, right? Um, And so your listeners will know that Mr. McCallum has a long history as a parliamentarian, as a cabinet minister. I think he served in the Correction government as well. And he only recently stepped out of government and and to take this high-profile appointment as the Liberal government's envoy or uh, chief diplomat in China. But that is a civil service job, okay? It is to the top of the civil service uh, pyramid, and it's a political appointment. But nevertheless, it's very important that people... People who are in that role um, play play um, play a, a role that's um, you know obviously a representation of the government itself, but one which is careful to um, stay in terms of the division of powers between um, the, for example, the courts in this case, right, to not overstep its bounds and sort of say anything about the legal or justice system and to remain very objective and even-handed about his things. And that Mr. McCallum's comments, I think, betrayed a certain inexperience specifically in the role of diplomat. And it's unfortunate because it comes at a very sensitive time in the relationship between the U.S. and China and between Canada and China and Canada and the U.S. respectively. So, and the, and the question is, it hinges on the existence of extradition treaties between the United States and Canada and the United States want when the United States wants somebody who's in who's in Canada as is the case here to be extradited to face criminal charges there there's an extradition treaty which allows that to happen provided there's a hearing and that the court the Canadian court is 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 convinced that on similar crimes which might exist in Canada as those charged in the United States there's a basically what the law would call a basic prima facie case or sufficient evidence for a reasonable conviction to lie if all of the evidence is proven to be correct. So you're not handing the person over to a miscarriage of justice. Now, also, when somebody's being handed over to the United States, for example, we often negotiate side agreements if the death penalty is on the table. Here, the death penalty is not on the table. But obviously, there's a strong desire by um, China to see this person um, not uh, to, to, to see that um, – you know, this be dealt with one way and by the U.S. to see it being dealt with um, another way. And, of course, it all relates back to politics because the allegations by the U.S. Department of Justice against her and her company revolve around breaking the newly restored um, sanctions on Iran based on a kind of company that operated – it was an entity owned by her own company and was doing business in Iran contrary to the American rules. Yeah, uh, well, along with an element of espionage, as it were, among the 23 charges uh, laid against Huawei today around stealing yes. technology. So yes. uh, yeah. I assume that the Canada-United-States-China yeah. relationship is not going to be exactly its best for the next little while. It, it can't be good for Canada. It can't really be good for Canada, frankly. It's like not the 
place you want to get caught in between. No, no kidding. Uh, Jeff, always a pleasure. Uh, I'm sure that we'll be uh, jam-packed agenda when we chat again next week. All right, great. Thanks for having me on, Shane. Jeffrey, as always, thanks so much for your time. That's lawyer Jeffrey Myers, also a lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University, talking about the Trump-Russia, latest in the Trump-Russia probe. And that wraps up today's Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.